Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus is one of the most exciting books of the Bible for me because it explains in intricate detail all of God's law. We've already covered a lot of his most basic laws in Exodus, but now God is going to give the people a very detailed legal system. And what I love about it is it's so fair, and it's so just, and it's so honorable. You learn a lot about God when you read his law. You learn that he cares about animals and he doesn't want them mistreated. You learn that he cares about women, and he doesn't want husbands to exhaust their wives. You learn that he understands when we make mistakes that are not intentional. And you learn that he doesn't like liars, and he doesn't like the harm that liars cause in other people's lives. God is so beautiful and kind. You see the kindness of God in the law because the law is all about treating other people the way God wants them treated. And God wants people treated really, really well. He does. The atheists and the haters and all those people who are constantly saying how angry and evil God is, if they would just sit down and study Leviticus, it would take all of their prejudice away. And so I wish everybody would read it. So this is where it really gets fun, because here in chapter 5, we're going to delve deep into the law. Verse 1, And if anyone sin in that he heareth the voice of adjuration, and adjuration is an oath, he being a witness, whether he hath seen or known, if he do not utter it, then he shall bear his iniquity. That means if there's a court case and you were an eyewitness and you know what really happened, but you refuse to speak, God holds you accountable. Some people today, they go to court and they, what is it, claiming the fifth or whatever? I don't want to say anything because I don't want to be responsible for what happened. But God says you can't claim the fifth. You have to be responsible for what happened. If you're an eyewitness, you have to tell the judge what happened. God doesn't like people refusing to speak to protect themselves or to protect their friends, because that hurts the victim. God wants the victim to get justice. Two, or if anyone touch any unclean thing, whether it be the carcass of an unclean beast, or the carcass of unclean cattle, or the carcass of unclean swarming things, and be guilty, it being hidden from him that he is unclean. Three, or if he touch the uncleanness of man, whatsoever his uncleanness be wherewith he is unclean, and it be hid from him, and when he knoweth it, be guilty. God is saying that, that when they touch something unclean, they're guilty. Now, this doesn't mean that God's angry at them, but he's a holy, pure God. Nothing unclean can approach him. Say you're just walking around and you trip over a dead carcass of an animal. You're guilty because you're dirty. You're physically dirty. You're unclean. But that doesn't mean that God's mad at you because he knows it was an accident. He's really talking about accidents. The verses 2 and 3 are talking about accidents. Say your dog got lost in the woods and then you find him, but when you find him, he's dead and he's partially eaten. The wolves got him and then the birds ate him. You'll have to touch his carcass to bury him, but that makes you clean. Or if somebody has a disease, an oozing sore or a disease, and you give that person a hug, not knowing that they had an oozing sore, when you find out later, you're guilty. You're like, oh, now I'm unclean. But God isn't mad at you, and you shouldn't be mad at yourself. All you have to do is get clean. 4. Or if anyone swear clearly with his lips to do evil, 
or to do good, whatsoever it be that a man shall utter clearly with an oath, and it be hid from him, and, when he knoweth it, he be guilty in one of these things. It seems strange that you wouldn't know when you make an oath, but I guess it means that you said that you would do something, and then it doesn't happen, and then you discover that it never happened. Like when I used to be a teacher, and I would make a promise to my class, and I'd forget about it sometimes, and then my class would confront me, and they'd, they'd say, you promised, blah, blah, blah. And I would go, no, I didn't, because I couldn't remember. And they're like, yes, you did. And they would jog my memory and after a minute or so, I would be like, oh, you're right. I did promise that. I'm sorry. Then I would have to make good on my promise. There was a couple of times where I made promises and I completely forgot what I had said. That's a case like this. If you don't keep your word, you're guilty. Even though it was an accident. 5. And it shall be when he shall be guilty in one of these things that he shall confess that wherein he hath sinned. I had to make confession to my students and say, oh, now I remember you're right. I'm wrong. I had to confess I had done wrong. 6. And he shall bring his forfeit unto the Lord for his sin which he hath sinned, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, or a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him as concerning his sin. Then you would have to bring a sacrifice. Now in my case, I would just have to make it up to my students by making good on the word or giving them an extra five-minute release to lunch or whatever it was. But in this case, in the Old Testament, you would bring a sacrifice. Now, some people would argue, well, that's so mean. That means you're going to have to bring a sacrifice every week. Well, you won't have to bring a sacrifice every week if you're careful. In other words, these laws are making us very careful about what we say and what we intend. If we're careful and thoughtful before we speak, we won't have to bring a sacrifice because we won't end up sinning. God does not like carelessness. And we will see this as a theme in the law as well. Carelessness is no excuse. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I didn't see that I bumped you, so it's not my fault. Carelessness is no excuse. In God's law, we have to love other people so much that we'll be careful not to bump them. That's how God loves people. And he wants us to love people that same way. 7. And if his means suffice not for a lamb, then he shall bring his forfeit for that wherein he hath sinned, two turtle doves, or two young pigeons, unto the Lord, one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering. God excuses you for being poor. He doesn't demand that the poor people bring a lamb, but they have to bring something that they can afford, which would be the two small birds. All the animals that are sacrificed have to be clean, which means only specific kinds of animals can be sacrificed. All these animals are plant eaters because plant eaters have never committed violence against another animal. Now that doesn't mean that eating meat is a sin. Jesus himself ate meat and God commanded the Israelites to eat meat. Eating meat is not a sin. But if you're a vegetable eater only, that is a metaphor for the Garden of Eden where everything was perfect. Adam and Eve didn't eat meat until after they left the garden and after they sinned. But when God was taking care of them in the garden, they only ate plants. And so did the animals in the garden. Everybody ate plants. That was God's original plan. Now again, we can eat all the meat we want, but in heaven there won't be any more death. And I think heaven, we're going to go back to eating plants. Just a theory. 8. And he shall bring them unto the priest who shall offer that which is for the sin offering first, and pinch off its head close by its neck, but shall not divide it asunder. The first bird 
will be for the sin. Its head is going to get pinched off and it will get burned on the altar. Nine, and he shall sprinkle of the blood of the sin offering, that's the first bird, upon the side of the altar, and the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. 10. And he shall prepare the second bird for a burnt offering, according to the ordinance. And the priest shall make atonement for him as concerning his sin which he hath sinned, and he shall be forgiven. Atonement is when the priest sprinkles the blood. That is what causes you to be forgiven. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus' blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. We'll go into it deeper in, when we get to the New Testament, but both spiritually and physically, I believe, his blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And that was how atonement was made for our sin. And the priest shall make atonement for him as concerning his sin, which he hath sinned, and he shall be forgiven. 11. But if his means suffice not for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he shall bring his offering for that wherein he hath sinned, the tenth part of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil upon it, neither shall he put any frankincense thereon, for it is a sin offering. It will get burned all by itself. I don't remember if it was the fellowship offering that has the oil and the incense added to it, or if it was the, the meal offering, but it was one of those. So if the man is so poor that he can't buy two birds to sacrifice, then he can open his cupboard and get some flour out of his cupboard. See how gracious God is. He doesn't penalize you for being poor. He just requires that you give from the best out of whatever you have, even if whatever you have isn't that much. 12. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as the memorial part thereof, and make it smoke on the altar upon the offerings of the Lord made by fire. It is a sin offering. When it's a grain offering, the priest just takes a part of it and burns part of it, and then the priests get to eat the rest. 13. And the priest shall make atonement for him as touching his sin, that he hath sinned in any of these things, and he shall be forgiven. And the remnant shall be the priests as the meal offering. The priest will take home the rest of that. Now, why does God require <clears throat> that the Israelites give something of value to them based on their income? When we have to make amends for our sins, that makes us remember and not do it again because we don't want to have to go and sacrifice that animal again. It's to help us learn to obey his word. Learning takes a lot of effort. When we make effort toward our relationship with God, then we get closer to him and we love him more. If we're really and truly sorry, we want to make up for it. That shows that you are sorry, that you have repented. If you want to be forgiven so bad that you would actually take one of your precious animals or the precious flower from your cupboard and bring it to the Lord, that means you're serious. That's why they had to give something up. It aided their memory so that they wouldn't do it again, and it proved to the Lord that they were serious. 14. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, 15. If anyone commit a trespass and sin through error in the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring his forfeit unto the Lord, a ram without blemish out of the flock, according to thy valuation in silver by shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. This means you're guilty, but it was a mistake. You didn't know you were doing wrong, but you find out later that you did something wrong. It's a trespass. Now, in some translations of the Bible, when Jesus said the Lord's Prayer, he actually said, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. But a lot of translations say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed, or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned. But it really wasn't that way. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive 
our sins against you as we forgive those who trespassed against us, which means a trespass is of less severity. So we're saying to God, when we did wrong against you, it was severe. But when others did wrong against us, it was less severe. It was a trespass because a lot of times when people hurt you, they don't really intend to hurt you. Like they'll say something that they don't think is offensive, but to you it's very offensive. And they'll hurt your feelings, but th they never wanted to. Or they won't invite you to a party, or they won't call you on Saturday night. But they're just busy, and they don't know that you're actually hurt by it. Half the time that people do things to us, they're unaware of the full outcome of it. Even if they make a rude comment, they don't really know how deep that comment cuts into our soul and all the repercussions of it and the years of agony that are caused from it. They just think it's a one-time comment and they think that after that you're going to be over it. They don't realize that for years and years and years you're going to have that comment mulling over in your mind. So on their side, it's a trespass because they're unaware of a lot of what they did. So anyway, a trespass is when you're not really aware of the full extent of what you've done, but you become aware later and then you still need to make it right. That's why we should know that it's easy to forgive others because what they've done to us was not full knowing. We need to understand that they don't always know what they're doing to us, but what we do to God is full knowing. That's full blown sin. 16. And he shall make restitution for that which he hath done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add the fifth part thereto, and give it unto the priest, and the priest shall make atonement for him with a ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. I think this means that if you basically robbed God, if you didn't give enough for your offering, now you have to pay an extra fifth or an extra 20% to make up for it. God demands interest when it's a financial sin because the interest proves that you really are sorry. Also, the time value of money is a financial concept, and that means that the person who gets the money first gets the most, because they can grow interest on that money, or they can invest it sooner, and it can grow a business faster. And that's why if you don't give God what's owed him, initially, you'll have to pay interest later, because you're going to pay him what he lost in interest. Now, God doesn't need our money. All of this is to change our hearts. God doesn't need one penny from us. He created all the gold that's in the entire world, so why would he need our money? This is to change our hearts and show us the value of keeping our word and being honorable. 17. And if anyone sin and do any of the things which the Lord hath commanded not to be done, though he know it not, yet is he guilty and shall bear his iniquity. You're guilty even if you don't initially know, but the point where you become guilty is where you do know where the Holy Spirit speaks to you and said you did wrong. That's when you're guilty. 18. And he shall bring a ram without blemish out of the flock, according to thy valuation, for a guilt offering unto the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him concerning the error which he committed, though he knew it not, and he shall be forgiven. Once he comes to know it, that he did wrong, then he goes and makes the offering, and then um, the priest makes atonement, which means sprinkles the blood for his forgiveness. Say your neighbor's sheep wanders into your property, and you don't recognize it as your neighbor's sheep, and you actually think it's one of your own. And then you slaughter it that night, and the whole family eats it. Later on, when you realize that it actually belonged to your neighbor, that's when you need to make your sacrifice for your sin. Initially, when you sinned, you didn't know what you were doing. 
but once you realize you're responsible for it. And a lot of people just let themselves get off scot-free. Oh, if I didn't know it when I was doing it, therefore I didn't do anything wrong. And that's pure evil. That's so evil to not take responsibility once you realize that you've done wrong. 19. It is a guilt offering. He is certainly guilty before the Lord. 20. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, 21. If anyone sin and commit a trespass against the Lord and deal falsely with his neighbor in a matter of deposit or of pledge or of robbery or have oppressed his neighbor, 22. Or have found that which was lost and dealt falsely therein and swear to a lie in any of all these that a man doeth sinning therein, 23. Then it shall be if he hath sinned and is guilty that he shall restore that which he took by robbery or the thing which he hath gotten by oppression or the deposit which he deposited with him or the lost thing which he found. This covers a lot of things that we see people doing every day. If one person their wallet falls out of their hand and they walk to their car and then another person behind them sees that they drop their wallet and instead of picking it up and shouting and saying, hey, I got your wallet, you dropped your wallet and returning it to them, the person who sees it will quietly pick it up and quietly put it in their pocket and not tell anybody. That's exactly the kind of situation that this is talking about. Another example of what these verses are talking about is when a family member extorts money from another, such as a parent taking social security money from a child and using it to go on a shopping spree. That's extortion. When the Bible says gotten by oppression, that's extortion. Or if a bully punches you in the nose if you don't give him your lunch money, that's money gotten by oppression. Or if something is deposited with you, like say your friend leaves their sheep with you while they travel, and then when they come back you say, oh, somebody stole your sheep, but really nobody stole their sheep. You just decided to sell it. That's an example of dealing falsely. Anytime you are dishonest for financial gain, that's what these verses are talking about. And in those cases, you owe 20% back. So God says you owe one-fifth interest to that person. Not only do you give them a healthy lamb back, but you also have to give them maybe 20% of a butchered lamb or else some flour or something else to go with it that would equal 20% of a lamb. Not only do you have to give that person 20% extra, but on top of that, you still have to bring your sacrifice to the Lord because you sinned against the Lord and you hurt somebody else. So you have to make amends, which is restitution. You have to set their life back in order. And you still have to go as make a sacrifice to the Lord to prove to him that you really are sorry and you're not going to do this again. He shall bring his forfeit unto the Lord, a ram without blemish, out of the flock, according to thy valuation, for a guilt offering unto the priest. 26. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven concerning whatsoever he doeth, so as to be guilty thereby. And that's just the beginning of God's beautiful, beautiful law, his law of love. His law is love. God is love. And he wrote all these rules because he hates it when his children are oppressed, taken advantage of, lied to, mistreated, or any of those rotten things. And God wants to teach evildoers to do well. He wants to teach people to change their behaviors. By giving back the person an extra 20% and giving God a ram, it teaches you not to do it again because it costs you so much to get out of trouble with the Lord that you're like, I'm not going to steal again because then I'm going to lose another ram. Plus, I'll have to pay 20% to my victim. It changes your heart little by little. Those people who start out with virtually no conscience, if they follow the law in a certain number of years, they should start developing a conscience. 
hopefully sooner than later. Because God loves all of us and he wants to be with all of us in heaven for all eternity. He wants restoration for victims and he wants a changed heart for the victimizers. And that concludes Leviticus chapter 5.
because plant eaters have never committed violence against another animal.